What retail leaders have their heads in the sand and which are forward thinking? And beyond that, what are those successful retail CEOs using to fight online retailers? Well, glad you asked. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor. I'm your host, Bob Fibbs, and we're sponsored today by SalesRx Online Retail Sales Training Program. My guest today is Peter Cohen. He's a management consultant, startup investor, business professor, book author, and columnist for Forbes and Inc. His just-released 15th book is titled Goliath Strikes Back, How Traditional Retailers Are Winning Back Customers from E-Commerce Startups. Now let's get to it. Well, you know, in your book, which is Goliath Strikes Back, How Traditional Retailers Are Winning Back Customers from E-Commerce Startups, you talked about three CEO strategic mindsets, create the future, follow the leader, and head in the sand. So let's just take uh, GE as a launching point and then tell me some stories from your book. Was it so follow the leader? Is that the culture that GE had and lost? Uh, and how does that relate to our listeners and people of medium size, large size, and even small mom and pops? I think GE pretty much had what I would call a head in the sand CEO after Welch. Welch was, I definitely think, was a create the future kind of CEO, which is sort of unusual because most of the create the future CEOs are in startups. I'm not saying that he created any great new technologies, but he did create some very new and powerful management ideas, such as being number one or number two in your industry or getting out. Um, this whole rank and yank thing, that, which he called the vitality curve, where he would basically rank all the people in the organization and get rid of the bottom 10% every year. And he also was big on using management ideas and management education. Uh, he was really into something called Six Sigma, which was a way mm -hmm. of improving, uh, error, you know, reducing error rates and things like that. So he was uh, an innovator when it came to management. And you know, I think also there was sort of a, a little bit of a nagging concern about the accounting that was used at GE. They just recently paid a big settlement with the SEC over some accounting I don't know all the details, but I, I mean, every single quarter, GE used to exceed analyst expectations by a penny. And that seems like almost magical. I, I think actually what they were doing was they were taking, uh, using pension accounting to sort of take out some extra money to make sure they always beat by pennies. So there was an element of accounting creativity there, which is not something you want to be creative about, which also contributed to GE's ability to keep succeeding every quarter, beating and analyst expectations which kept the stock going up. But he did create the future. And, and as soon as he left, uh, in came this guy, Immelt, who um, I would call a head in the sand CEO. I mean, he basically had these ideas that were kind of unrelated to reality. And he just forced them on everybody and didn't listen to feedback from anybody. That's what I call a head in the sand CEO. Uh, another way of putting it might be that they don't get out of their own mind. I teach a course on strategic decision-making where I talk about behavioral economics as one of the things. And a part of behavioral economics is all these uh, things that are essentially biases, the ways people kind of twist their perception of reality to fit with something going on inside of their minds. And, and Jeff Immelt was somebody like that. Now, the current CEO, I think, is more of a, a fast follower CEO. I think he's definitely the kind of person who comes into company that's in trouble and turns it around. I think he's demonstrated uh, the ability to, to turn around the company, and I think he, he eventually will, which is very much related to the retail industry. And one of my favorite case studies in the book 
is a case study of Best Buy, which was in trouble in 2012 when this uh, former McKinsey consultant named Hubert Joly came in to um, the company, which had lost $1.7 billion and its CEO had um, been kicked out uh, in the wake of a uh, inappropriate relationship with an employee. And he had also done something else, which is, seems like a small thing, but it's very important uh, in the turnaround of the company, which is that he decided to eliminate uh, the employee discounts on Best Buy. So they, employees couldn't get discounts on the stuff they would buy at Best Buy. He was trying to essentially bleed the employees. And this is one of the things that I found is a very uh, common phenomenon in the retail industry, is that when uh, the retail industry gets into trouble and it has the wrong kind of CEO, um, that CEO will view the employees as costs to be reduced and not recognize the important linkage between uh, happy and effective people who are dealing with their customers and the and the future of the business. In other words, if you cut people uh, from a business that's based on the relationship between the salespeople and the people on the floor and the customers, and you put in people that don't understand the customers, and I've seen this in countless industries, including the grocery industry, where I was in a movie about the grocery industry. There's this company called Market Basket, which had uh, all these employees went out on strike in 2014 to get back their CEO. The point of the story is that Hubert Jolie recognized that rather than penalize employees, he needed to kind of glorify employees. He needed to connect the mission of the company to the goals and dreams of the individual employees. So for example, um, he had the store managers go into each store and talk to the employees and ask them questions about you know, what they wanted, what their goals were in life. And he had this one employee who was in Woburn, Massachusetts, which is north of Boston, and he uh, wanted to get a house. The manager of the store said, we're going to give you training and give you developmental opportunities so you can get paid enough money to buy a house here, which is you know, an expensive part of Massachusetts to live in. Um, so that's just a small example, but you know that he restored the employee discounts. He listened to employees. He did a lot of the things that they suggested because they were in direct contact with the uh, customers and knew what the customers were dissatisfied with and had recommendations how to fix those sources of dissatisfaction. That's a great point. I think as longtime listeners know, I quit a job because the CEO said, "What's a company's greatest asset?" And I go, "It's employees." He goes, "Wrong." And then no one knew the answer. He goes, it's customers. And I said, customers can go anywhere. They're not loyal to you. <laughs> so the only way you build a company is by people and keeping them on base, like Lululemon, like Container Store, like Starbucks. There's a lot of people that are out there doing it, of course. But the horror stories, like Circuit City deciding the new CEO says, we're going to get out of appliances. Why? Because I don't want to be in that business. Or Penny's trying to throw appliances in, <laughs> like these just wild changes when the wild changes, you're not going to see. I think that's what you're saying, Peter, right? It's going to be behind the scenes. And then we look back and say, oh, so that's what was really going on. In my book, I have a chapter on um, consumer electronics. And Circuit City was like a perfect example of how not to do something. <laughs> there was a CEO uh, named Philip Schoonover. And he had this idea that he was going to replace 3,400 experienced salespeople with 2,100 employees who were like, paid the minimum wage, had no experience at all. And no commission and no bonuses, right? Because the merchandise will sell itself. Yes. And, and what happened was that the service was so bad that customers were filing hundreds of thousands of complaints with Circuit City. And then they were going to somewhere else like Best Buy or Walmart to buy stuff. And they had all this unsold inventory and uh, they had debt 
and they lost their customers. Um, they had no money to buy new inventory, and uh, they very quickly uh, went bankrupt in, I think it was November 2008. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. So JCPenney, Ron Johnson, do you think he was the smartest guy in the room, or he was the disaster that I think he was? Yeah, I think I think he did the wrong thing. I don't really know a huge amount about what happened to JCPenney, but and one of the things that I found in these um, head in the sand CEOs is that they were successful earlier in their career doing something, and they think that wherever they go, just do that same thing and they'll be successful. And I think that they have too narrow a view of where the success was coming from. I think the more universalized way of being successful is to have a strategic mindset. In the retailing industry, I think the, the future comes from creating the products that people are so eager to buy that they will go into your store because you're the only one creating them and selling them. Another strategy is a sort of a sort of fast follower strategy where you kind of apply what I call the loyalty effect mindset, where you have really happy, enthusiastic, excited employees who are highly motivated to create new products and give excellent service to customers. So you give an unbeatable value proposition to customers. And so you attract the customers and you keep them buying because they're always trying to come up with new ways to make life better for those customers. So as you pointed out before, um, customers are not loyal to you. They're loyal to um, what they want. As Jeff Bezos says, uh, our customers are delightfully dissatisfied. They're always dissatisfied with whatever we do. And we keep trying to get ahead of them uh, and, and providing them with new way, reasons to be happy until they quickly lose that uh, level of satisfaction and they become dissatisfied, we have to keep reinventing. I want to just interrupt that for one second, because I think so many smaller businesses like to believe our customers love us. They start off from the place that we can do no wrong. Our customers love us. And it's the reason I'm not successful, it's not me. It's Amazon. It's, oh, it's it's them. And to to make that switch to say, holy crap, it's me as a CEO would really be an elevated position. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I would have to think that the Create the Future leaders are few and far between. They are few and far between. You know, I think even though um, Amazon has things that I, I would criticize about it, it does have this thing, which I think is uh, useful for any CEO. And I would recommend that anyone who's listening to this, just go to any one of the annual shareholders letters that Jeff Bezos writes in the annual report. And, and he talks about the day one philosophy which is gets at what I think, I've written several books about this topic of complacency and how people get complacent. And he believes that as soon as you get complacent, you go from day one to day two. On day one, you're always trying to reinvent the business, always trying to make it better for customers, I'm always thinking of creative new ways to do things that customers want. But if you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to do what I did yesterday, that's day two. And once you're on to day two, you are, it's just a matter of time before you stop listening to customers, you stop listening to people who are telling you what's happening on the floor, you stop looking at what's going on with competitors, you stop analyzing trends and new technology, you stop analyzing how consumer needs are changing and the changing needs of new demographic groups, and you essentially begin liquidating the company. I would say that when it comes down to complacency, then you're going to lean on discounts and you're going to say it's all about marketing and we've got to have more Instagram posts and we've got to more social media and we have to have influencers and suddenly you start dancing around the fact that people just don't want to have your experience and they're not willing to give you enough money to make a profit for you to stay as a going concern. Wouldn't you agree that that suddenly you start leaning on these levers that used to work in the 50s? Oh, 10% off this weekend only, your friends and family. And now that's your marketing strategy. 
And everyone's holding on to it, right, Peter? That that we're all holding on to it and saying that we're right, right? And we're all sitting around like, yeah, we're right, except customers already moved on. So this is the thing that is underpinning the day one philosophy is that you're always going out and listening to customers with an objective mind. You're not imposing your own experience on what you're hearing. So this is where the head in the sand mindset comes from is that you have what I call confirmation bias. I mean, this is not a new concept, but I, I talk about it a lot, which is essentially you are listening to the stream of information that's going into your ears and you're only accepting the information that is consistent with what you already believe. So if you talk to 100 customers and one customer says, oh, one of the things I liked about your company was that you gave me a 10% discount, then that is all you'll hear. You won't hear the other 99 customers that said, your selection is not correct, your service people are not good, your customer service is not responsive enough, product quality is not there. They don't listen to any of that. All they hear is the statement from one customer that reinforces what they've already believe about themselves. And of course, the people who they surround themselves with also are forced to follow that same thing, which is to only tell the CEO the things that they want to hear. Because if they keep telling the CEO things that they don't want to hear, then the CEO will ignore them and eventually they'll be fired. So that whole idea of maintaining intellectual humility and listening to customers and recognizing that the reality is that everything changes virtually every day. And if you don't listen to that, in an objective way and measure it, you know, you can get into trouble. I would agree. You know, in your book, you talked uh, about uh, Thomas Robertson's four areas, winners excel, omnichannel, customer experience, positioning, innovation. I I think at the end of uh, 2020, you know, we're in a new year now and it's easy to say, oh, we were so innovative. We have curbside pickup. Uh, Curbside pickup has been variable. We have BOPAs. BOPAs has been around forever. (laughs) This isn't really that innovative, uh, honestly. but it seems that there has been a push to say brick and mortar retailers need to become like e-commerce startups. So you've been gracious with your time today. What are some of the winning uh, ways that a traditional retailer can win that back? Because quite simply, the PR around anything e-com is, oh, it's growing by 8,000% and everyone's online and everyone's great. But the dirty secret is 40% is returned and it's not profitable. And unless you got deep pockets, you're not going to survive long enough to build a brand. And even with ghost kitchens, which I was reading about the other day about how great ghost kitchens are going to be great. It's like, there's no brand. It makes sense if you're McDonald's or Taco Bell or something, but you're Jane's Mediterranean food and you're going to make yours with somebody else. How are you going to get leverage enough to have people want it to begin with, oh, well, we'll do it with DoorDash. They're going to take 10 bucks on every order. Where does this make sense? So what are the things that really do make sense for a traditional retailer to fight online? If it's a big company like I wrote about it in my book, I mean, it's it's pretty clear that um, Amazon is saying that they're going to deliver in two days, but they're really going to deliver in a week. And you can go order online and pick up at a store that's a 15-minute drive from your house within an hour or within the day. And they have changed the way they run their supply chain in the store so that the item that you order is actually physically there when you want to pick it up. And somebody can actually put it outside the store and you can get it. If that happens, then I think you're offering a superior value proposition uh, to the consumer. And they will shop with you as a traditional retailer because you've changed your ordering, you've changed your supply chain, you've changed the kind of customer services you provide so that they can go pick it up outside the store safely um, rather than going inside the store. That is, that is a 
objectively better consumer experience than waiting for an uncertain period of time to get your Amazon order delivered. So I can see why that would work for a traditional retailer with stores. I do not have a great idea for how to fix the restaurant industry. I'm quite sure, I mean, there's a great local restaurant near where we live. You know, it's like a week to week thing. It was full of people outside until it got too cold to go outside. People don't want to go inside because it's, you know, kind of confined. Then they had one of their staff members had COVID and they shut down for two weeks. And and, and now they're saying, give us, you know, buy gift cards, keep us alive. It's like, um, there's really no obvious solution to this this uh, problem for a small uh, a small store or a small restaurant. So tell me a, tell me another story from your book. I noticed you talk about retailers. You know, one of the things that I noticed with RH when they changed their name that we're suddenly going to go really high end, and the only way you're going to get a discount is if you're part of our membership program, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to come up with these incredible showcases, and they seem to be the darling, but. Uh, what, two or three years ago, everybody was saying that's never going to work. Yes. I mean, I didn't study restoration hardware in my book. uh, But one thing I did study, which I thought was really interesting in the furniture industry was Wayfair. You know, Wayfair was extremely interesting to me because I had been interviewing the CEO for years, even before they went public. And when I first started writing about it in February of uh, 2020, its stock was going down, down. It was like in the 20s. And the problem was that they were losing money. They had no path to profitability. And it was right after the WeWork IPO kind of was catastrophically you know, bad. And people said, maybe I shouldn't be investing in companies that uh, are, are not going to ever make money. And then suddenly with the pandemic, it got two pieces of incredibly good news. First of all, all their competitors that were store-based furniture retailers were shutting down the stores because of social distancing. Second of all, all these people who had been going into the office were now working from home. And all those people who were working from home were looking at their home and saying, I need new furniture. So the only place to buy furniture, or one of the few places to buy furniture, where they could kind of see what they were buying and get it delivered and all that, was Wayfair. So suddenly Wayfair's revenue growth went into the 80 to 90% of growth rate. It was like a perfect storm, but a good storm. The storm was a tailwind for them, and it propelled their growth, and the stock went from you know, 24 to 350. And you know, it creates an interesting problem for um, these companies that are publicly traded, which is that that growth rate is not sustainable. Eventually, people have bought all the furniture that they can possibly buy for their homes. You know, there's no new places to get that kind of growth from. And there's the vaccine out there, which maybe a year from now will mean that people We'll go back into the office. And your competitors are all open again. Don't forget, they're all back open. So there's plenty of places that I can go and I don't have to wait, to your point. I can drive down and see it, right? Yeah. So so what other, what do you think the way forward for a company like that is going to be? Are they going to have to open brick and mortar stores? I know they opened one, but I don't. that doesn't seem like their model, does it? One of the things they realized, which I found interesting from the Circuit City story also, was this idea of showrooming, which I guess is a well-known concept. I, it was sort of newish to me when I started writing the book, but I mean, I had done it myself. I would go into a retail store, I would find the exact item that I wanted to buy, and then I would look at the price and write down the price, and then I would go online and find a lower price somewhere else. So that showrooming phenomenon is, of course, devastating to a store-based retailer, but there's a lot of products where you, you can't just look at a picture online and buy it. I mean, I guess some people do it, but Buying a tomato 
from a picture on a website rather than actually physically seeing the tomato. I mean, you know, you don't, you know, you're not going to get that picture, you know, delivered to you and embodied in a tomato when you order a tomato online. If you buy anything that has physical features where you really need to physically interact with it, you need to go into a, in a store and, and physically interact with it. So what Best Buy did was they decided they were going to match the prices of online. So, so basically, they stopped the showrooming. And then another interesting thing is that Amazon, which was essentially competing with them, they decided to partner with Amazon because Amazon had things that they had developed, like the Amazon Fire TV, where they had no showroom. And you know they knew that people needed showrooms to see the TV so they would buy it. So Best Buy set aside some space in their store to display that Amazon TV. So it was, a, I thought, a brilliant way of sort of neutralizing that terrifying phenomenon of both showroomy and Amazon. And it basically, it basically worked. And Best Buy made their people, their salespeople, kind of these systems integrators. If I buy a, uh, a 55-inch flat screen TV from Best Buy, I suddenly need a place to put the TV. I can't just put it on my old stand that I, I got to get. I got to get a, a big stand to put it on, and I might need to get some other things. And you can buy it all there, and the person can help you figure out exactly what to buy and how it's going to fit together. And they can even send a geek to your house if you need help to install it all. That's a real need. They were doing things to essentially, you know, listen to their customers, listen to their employees. Their employees were telling them other things like the website is too hard to search. Make it easier to search. And also make the app easier to search. You know, give us back our employee discounts. Treat us well. You know, reward us for you know treating the customers well. And all these things put together, stock went up 330 percent between 2012 and 2019 when um, Jolie uh, uh, retired. Um, it was really a, a success story on many different dimensions. Excellent. We're going to take a break there, and we'll be right back with more from Peter Cohen. What if you could be fully prepared to lead your marketplace in the new retail surge for 2021, restore your sales volume to pre-pandemic levels, and start seeing double-digit sales increases every month? Well, it can happen, but only if you train your associates. That's why you should check out salesrx.com. We train every associate how to engage a stranger, discover the shopper, and yes, make more sales. Check out salesrx.com after this broadcast. And we're back with Peter, the author of Goliath Strikes Back, How Traditional Retailers Are Winning Back Customers from E-Commerce Startups. So what's the best or worst advice you've ever received when it comes to uh, business? There are two really good pieces of advice I got, and both of them are from my father. One of them is, don't be afraid to ask. The worst thing they can say is no. One of the things I did in college was I was a salesman for the college newspaper. So I would call up people on the yellow pages and sell ads just by looking at their yellow page advertisement. I try to convince them to advertise in the local newspaper. And I just call up and talk to the local owner of the store and just talk to them. You know, sometimes they just hung up. Sometimes they listened to me and said no. And sometimes they said yes. So I kind of developed a thick skin and a sort of lack of fear of just trying and being rejected. You know, do it over and over again. And you kind of realize it's a bit of a numbers game. And the other thing that I find found really useful, and I'm not quite sure how I got this, but I think it's super important, is to um, always be very clear in your own mind about what you know and what you don't know. And don't be afraid to admit you don't know something, and don't be afraid to admit that you, you have a weakness. 
because you can't fake it. I am, I am a terrible faker, a terrible liar. I can't do any of that stuff. And I just find it incredibly liberating. I feel as though people have high expectations of me. And I just find it incredibly liberating to sort of say, well, you may have high expectations of me, but I'm telling you, I know myself and I know that I'm not good at this. I don't know this. I need help with this. If we can partner together, if I can find somebody who can help me with the thing I'm weak at, then you're going to get a much better result for the organization. And so I just find that to be super liberating. It kind of gets to the point in my life where I kind of realize that I have some narrow things that I'm good at that may not be valuable to 99% of the people in the world, and I'm not going to do those things. And if there are things that I can do or I can partner with somebody who's good at complementary skill uh, and together we can get something done, that's fantastic. But I just find that the, both of those things are, are, are valuable kind of insights that could work for just about anybody in business. Yeah, that's excellent. So, uh, you know, the name of the podcast is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. So why do you choose retail? I mean, what's uh, one thing specific that retail means or what do you think? Is it here to stay? I, I happen to believe I'm pretty bullish on it. I think we're the reality is we're going to get through this pandemic. People, I think we're going to be on the cusp of a new hedonism. I think we are going to be in the next two or three years. It's going to be the roaring 20s. And yeah. um, I'm just seeing that with the brands that I work with who came through 2020, like, holy crap. It was Christmas in July and it hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. So that's my take on retail. But, you know, tell me something good about retail, Peter. Yeah, I mean, people love to shop. And, uh, you know, a lot of people like to be out and see, see other people. And so, you know, retail is a way to do that. I think people have a, a lot of pent up desire to get out and be with other people. And that's going to be great for retail. But also, I think that a lot of businesses that depend on social proximity as opposed to social distancing, which are more than just retail. I mean, education, travel, uh, movie theaters, theater performances, music performances, all that kind of stuff. All these things are going to have a huge increase in demand when the pandemic is over. But I think that the people who have lived through this pandemic are going to always realize that they need to be able to turn on a dime and react quickly to unpleasant and unexpected changes that can just sort of come up very, very quickly. And, you know, one example that I just found incredibly interesting was Airbnb. I wrote a, an article in Forbes recently about Airbnb's IPO. And I said, this is going to explode when it goes public. It's going to just have a huge increase. It, it more than doubled, even though they raised the valuation, it more than doubled. And the value of the company was $18 billion in 2019. And now that it's public, I don't know, it's probably 40 billion, 50 billion. I don't know what it is right now, but it was just extremely successful. And the, and the thing that really struck me was that the CEO, Brian Chesky, had a, a really bad a first quarter, second quarter of 2020. And, and he listened to what was going on and watched what was going on with customers. Customers were not going on these, you know, getting Airbnbs by traveling somewhere and get, getting an Airbnb there. But they were living, people in cities were trying to get Airbnbs for something that was maybe 20 minutes or tw 20 miles away from the city. So he, they completely redid the website and the app so that it would be easy for people to search for that. And that caused their revenues to skyrocket in the second quarter uh, or the third quarter of, of 2020. So by the time they went public, they were showing tremendous growth. So my point is that he tracked what, how customer behavior was changing using the data that they have and see what, what was going on. And I think any retailer should be doing that, keeping very close attention to how their customer behavior is changing. 
And then also you know, reacting quickly, not just looking at it and saying, well, I hope this goes away. I don't know what to do. They just decided to do something and act. So it's not enough to just track what's going on and then hope it goes away. You have to track what's going on and cause the whole organization to, to change. You have to place a bet. Well, like you say, that's creating the future. And that's a great place for us to end, Peter. I appreciate your time today. So tell me, how do we find out more about your book and any other ways we can find out more about you, Peter? Uh, Yeah, I mean, Goliath Strikes Back is uh, certainly available on Amazon and all the other online places. You can learn more about me by uh, checking out my website, petercohan.com, or my Babson College faculty page. Just type my name in uh, Babson College and it'll pop right up there. There you go. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Peter, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. You know, I really appreciated Peter's point about CEOs who were either focused on creating the future and growing their business, or those that had their heads in the sand and let their brands decline and, well, even disappear. I don't want that for you. So look at how you can innovate your store, your retail business, and make sure it's rooted in being customer first. That's the ticket. Look for another episode of Tell Me Something Good About Retail in the coming weeks with my favorite retail futurist, Martin Lindstrom. You won't want to miss it. I'm Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. Thanks again for listening. Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of the Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom-and-pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit RetailDoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information, to access the complete archives of past retail goodness, and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit RetailDoc.com.